Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us, however you're watching or listening, and wherever you are across the street or around the world. We're thrilled that you're going to be with us today as we take a shot at turning down the noise of the news cycle on some really important stuff going on both here, abroad, here, there, everywhere. Hither and yorn, we're glad you're with us. Appreciate you giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. Going to cover a couple things today on the program. Madison Cawthorn out in North Carolina. He's a representative. Uh, his drip, drip, drip of bad press has turned into a flood. We've got a theory on that. We'll talk about it on the show. We've been covering him for a while. Also, uh, Dick Vitell been fighting cancer and has been doing a lot of charity work. We always end on a good, happy note. So we'll go down to Sarasota, Florida, check in on everybody's favorite basketball commentator. Also, uh, Senator Ed Markey had some interesting comments involving Twitter and Elon Musk and busted out the term algorithmic justice. We'll break down what that term means, what it should mean, what it could mean, and what it probably means as far as what the government would like to do with social media and the broader Internet. Speaking of Elon Musk, great guest today, R.G. Lehman, a good friend of ours, been a Twitter buddy for a long time. Uh, he is the editor-in-chief of the International Center for Law and Economics. He's going to be on the program today. We're going to talk about the business side of Elon Musk's attempts to acquire Twitter. Everybody's been talking about the content side. What about the business side? What about the numbers? What about the strategy there? This is a company. It has to be run like a company. It's not just stuff where we use the content side of it to send our cat pictures and yell at Washington, D.C. We'll get into that with him, uh, RJ Lehman, in a little bit on the program. But first, let's start with the war in Ukraine, Russia's war of aggression, their brutalizing of the Ukrainian people. We haven't touched in on it on a day or two because um, we have to cover some other stuff, but it is the pressing issue of our day and we need to cover it as much. Now, Russia has played its Trump card. Uh, we have been talking for a while on this program that we fear this war may become a very long war, a protracted war. It's starting to look that way as we enter into uh, getting close to the third month of this war of aggression of what Vladimir Putin is doing to Ukraine and the wider world. They've pulled their trump card. Um, Russia is cutting off gas uh, to Europe. Now, uh, there's a couple different moving parts to this. We knew this was going to happen because this is all they got. The war's not going good. Uh, the EU is more and more, along with the rest of the world, supporting Ukraine. So he's going to try to threaten to cut off their gas. Now, uh, just for an example here, we're going to go to Poland. Poland has been really carrying the burden of doing the work of helping Ukraine. Of course, they share a border 
with Ukraine. So obviously they are logistically important, but morally important. They've also been really standing up to Russia. They've been kind of the centerpiece of the EU's response. Uh, the EU and Europe widely has not treated Poland well in the past, but they are sure shouldering the load here. And it's important to remember, we've covered it on the program before, Poland remembers. They have a living memory of Russian aggression and living under the Russian boot heel and having Moscow treat them very unfairly. So they've got a lot of skin in this game. There's a lot of back history there. Poland's energy czar, though, came out with some interesting comments. We're going to read from the Washington Post here. We are prepared, Naminsky said in a Polish radio interview. That's the energy czar. We have the ability to bring enough gas to Poland, so that is enough for everyone, and we need to remain calm. Poland and a handful of its neighbors, including Lithuania, are well ahead of other European countries in preparing for life without Russian gas. Lithuania is another one of those. Isn't it interesting? It's a bit of an aside here. The countries that have that living memory of how bad Russia can be to deal with, they seem to be a little bit more prepared, have a little clearer viewpoint. We should probably listen to them. Still, back to the Washington Post. Ensuring stable energy supplies in the coming weeks could be a high wire act. The nation of 38 million, talking about Poland here, has generally imported about half of its natural gas from Russia, using it to heat and power countless homes and factories. Officially, Russia said it was cutting off power to Poland because Warsaw refused to start paying for gas in rubles instead of euros. Quick aside again, remember we covered this a couple of weeks ago. Russia said they were going to be paid only in rubles. It was one of the ways they're going to try to get around the sanctions. It's put pressure on China and India and other countries that are not participating in the sanctions to kind of keep their economy going. Back to the Washington Post. Uh, some analysis said Russia is probably punishing Poland for its strong support of Ukraine. You think? Poland is the sixth biggest European market, and I think they wanted to show that they can use this punishment with a larger partner, said Marcin Roskowski, president of the uh, Institute of Think Tank in Warsaw. And I skipped that name on purpose because that's a whole lot of letters in this hillbilly can only handle so much pronunciation. So I apologize. In an interview from his Warsaw office last week, Naminsky sketched out his grand plan more than 20 years in the making to switch to gas from Norway, the United States and other allied nations gesturing toward a wall of maps. The 71-year-old Secretary of State for Energy Infrastructure showed off a nearly completed network that Poland has spent years building a multi-billion dollar terminal to import liquefied national, natural gas via ship, a spider web of pipelines crisscrossing Poland and connecting to friendly neighbors and an undersea pipeline to Norway scheduled to be open one October. That one October is really important because remember, Winter is coming. Winter is when this gas stuff is really going to bite in Europe, especially Eastern Europe. We can do it. We can do it, Naminsky said of Poland and its European neighbors considering a break with Russian energy. Every sanction is costly, but it is not possible to count it in just the money these days, he said, referring to the so Russia's so invasion is inflicting upon the Ukrainian people. Historically, Poland was a Russian's the target, the target for political dominance, Naminsky said. So for us in Poland, cutting these lines, these tools enabling the Russians to interfere in our internal issues or undermine the sovereignty of Poland is a crucial issue. This is Poland. What we want to highlight here is this is somebody who's planned ahead. They've worked on this for 20 years. They saw the threat that Russia was going to be. They saw the amount of gas that they needed from Russia and was getting from Russia, and they started working on it. For 20 years, they've worked on it. Now, they're not quite there yet, and some things may go wrong, but they may be in a position by the time winter comes, which is when this stuff really is going to get life and death, to actually do something about it. The lesson, as always, 
is leadership is staying ahead of the curve, not reacting to things. Imagine if in America, we had spent the last 10 or 15 years working on our own pipelines, working on our own infrastructure. It's great that we have things like a brand new liquid gas port down in places like Savannah that we can export from. But we could have stood that up faster. We could have had pipelines done earlier. I understand there's environmental concerns. I understand there's political concerns. But we, the things they want to do now, like we could upgrade our gas export to European countries that are, want to get off Russian gas, that doesn't happen overnight. It's going to take months to set up the logistics of it, and it'll take years to upgrade the infrastructure of it. The lesson from the Poles, our Polish friends over there, they've been working on it for 20 years, and they're going to be in a position to maybe do something about it. So maybe we should start today working on the crisis for 5, 10, 15 years from now. Once again, energy independence is crucial to being part of a free world because you're going to wind up at the behest of really bad faith actors if you don't. Our involvement in the Middle East, the stuff going on in Russia, over and over again, the lesson is clear. We should be energy independent. We should be able to export it to our friends who are also freedom-loving peoples around the world. And these things don't happen overnight. They need to be planned ahead of time. They need to be carefully considered. We can't do a lot about this current crisis. We should start preparing for the next one because there will be another one. There'll be another Vladimir Putin trying to leverage natural resources. Let's get on it now. Let's get on our leaders now so that we're prepared when that storm comes. More hard tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, we've covered Madison Cawthorn a couple times on the program, been covering him a lot more recently. And we're going to have to cover him again because the floodgates are opening up on Madison Cawthorn and not in a good way. Uh, I wrote about it in Ordinary Times today. Uh, there's something going on here. Clearly, the Republican powers that be want him gone. Now, his primary comes up May 17th. We've already talked to our friends like Brooke Medina on this program. If you missed her interview, go back and listen to it. This guy's been bad from the second he got in Congress. He's unfit. He should have been expelled from Congress. But they found another way to do it. I wrote about it in Ordinary Times. Uh, I'll just share it with you here for his part. Madison Cawthorn, reading from Ordinary-Times.com. The link is in the show notes. Uh, has given them plenty of wet rain to rain upon his head as detailed by CNN. Cawthorn claimed in March that he had been invited to a drug orgy uh, and he had seen leaders in the anti-drug movement doing cocaine. Of course, after he met with minority leader Kevin McCarthy, he changed his true tune and McCarthy said he, quote, did not tell the truth. That's unacceptable. That same month, um, Cawthorn was faced with charges of driving with a revoked driver's license. It was the second time in the last five years he had faced those charges, and it came out that he had been pulled over many other times. Cawthorn also drew negative headlines in March when a video service in which he referred to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky as a thug and said that the Ukrainian government was incredibly evil. I would have liked for some enterprising reporting to ask Madison Cawthorn to point out Ukraine on a map. Uh, in March of 2021, CNN reported on a series of allegations involving sexual misconducts made against Cawthorn by women who he said had behaved inappropriately towards them during his brief college years. Cawthorn denied all wrongdoing. Oh, and by the way, that doesn't count the most recent gun charge he just caught on Wednesday for packing in the TSA line. The second such incident of recent vintage for Madison Cawthorn, man of many parts, all of them juvenile, suspect, and embarrassing. 
at the end of the movie casino after running for most of the movie doing whatever he wanted to whomever he wanted however he wanted to do it Nicky santoro and his brothers are supposed to be having a meeting in the cornfield but instead they get their brutal brutal graphic comeuppance involving baseball bats trash talk and finally being buried alive the whole scene based off the true story of the spilotro brothers demise in an indiana cornfield was capped off by Robert De Niro's narration that said, quote, the word was out. The bosses had had enough of Nikki. They had enough. How much were they going to take? So they made an example of him. The GOP powers that be have had enough. This is me writing in ordinary-times.com. And three weeks out from the North Carolina primary with several viable candidates against him, none of this flood of bad is accidental. Air the laundry, give Madison Cawthorn enough public relations rope to hang himself, and let the problem solve itself at the ballot box which is, when you think about it, pragmatic and smart politics. It's also utterly cynical and gutless. What the Republican Party ought to do is call a vote, put their names on it, and expel the person they clearly know is unfit for office. None of his character flaws are new news, or is his juvenile going towards abusive behavior a secret? They've known, and they've known for a while, but now it might actually hurt them. Or they are mad at the cocaine orgy comments or a dozen other selfish reasons. But now all of a sudden they've decided he has to go. But they won't get their own hands dirty, of course. So off to the rhetorical cornfield he goes to be bludgeoned by story after story until his political career is dead. It couldn't happen to a nicer guy. It's also utterly hypocritical of a GOP that is completely bereft of anything vaguely resembling integrity. And with Kevin McCarthy at the helm and doing anything it takes to get his long coveted speakership, the congressional cohort of Team Red isn't likely to become a beacon of righteousness anytime soon, nor is the political body count likely to end with just Madison Cawthorn. The GOP party bosses might have had enough of Madison Cawthorn to finally do something about it, but he is a problem of their own making. Their handling of it is as telling as to the limits and the ways that they will deal with such things and such problematic members of Congress in their caucus in the future. Most of all, the truth is, although there are survivors in the congressional cornfield of Cawthorn's comeuppance, there are no good guys here, just bats and holes and problems of their own making to be buried that otherwise wouldn't go away. And this is who we're governed by. Shame on us. And God help us. More hotel. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's get into it. Uh, everybody's been talking about it. I've been talking about it. I don't want to talk about it, so I'm going to ask him about it, and he's going to talk about it. Uh, R.J. Lehman, our friend, uh, he is the editor-in-chief of the International Center for Law and Economics. He's a good Twitter buddy for a long time, so one of the reasons I do this show, I get to talk to my Twitter buddies in real life. Good to meet him. And a Twitter Supper Club member in good standing from the wonderful state of Florida on the left-hand side. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Uh, we were kicking this around on Twitter. There's been some developments since then, but let's reset it this way because everybody's talking about Elon Musk and Twitter, and they're all talking about it from the content point of view, the cultural point of view, the social media point of view. 
talk to me about the business side of this because I think it's getting glossed over and really in the grand scheme of things, that side of it's more important and all that content stuff folks talking about, none of that happens without the business side of it being in order. So let's start there. Just Mm -hmm. what we know now, where do you think the business side of this sits? So what we know is Twitter has been an underperforming stock for a few years. Um, When you compare it to the other major platforms, uh, particularly Facebook, which which also includes the Facebook subsidiaries like Instagram and uh, WhatsApp. Um, Twitter does not generate anywhere near the same revenue. It doesn't have the same kind of user base. It's got a different kind of uh, uh, profile in terms of who its users are and what they get out of the experience. Um, it, the, pri- I, the obvious primary difference is Twitter does not have the kind of demographic information about its users that Facebook does. Facebook knows quite a bit about who you are, what you like, what you might want to buy, um, which is valuable information for their for their advertisers. Uh, Twitter, much less so. You know, it, it does know some things. It knows who you follow, knows who you inter- engage with. Um, it doesn't necessarily really know who you are. There's a lot of anonymity on Twitter. Um, and uh, it has not been able in quite a while to convert its service into a really profitable business. So that's that's why there's a good business case for a takeover for taking it another direction. That uh, its its original concept um, was a good one and a popular one, but not necessarily a profitable one. Elon Musk um, has a long history of of uh, controversy on the Twitter platform. Um, and so it was unclear when he first announced that he was taking a stake in the company what his goal was. He uh, took uh, a nine, he announced on April 1st, many people noted it was April Fool's Day, that he was buying 9% of the company, which is an important uh, uh, threshold because at 10%, there's a lot of reporting requirements that a company having that size stake. So he didn't go over that. Um, and he, uh, it was announced initially that he would be joining the board of directors. Uh, that uh, ultimately, a couple of days later, did not happen. Uh, the, the board announced that Elon was no longer interested in joining. Many people speculated that the reason he wasn't interested in joining is as a member of the board of directors, he would have fiduciary duties to look out for the best interests of the company. And so a lot of his behavior, talking smack <laughs> about Twitter and what it's like and what it does would be stuff that he would be precluded theoretically from doing and that that might be why he didn't join the board. And so then uh, again, a couple of days later, he made a full offer to buy out all of Twitter, the whole, the whole lock, stock and barrel um, and take the company private. So it would no longer be a, a publicly traded company. Um, initially the board was resistant to doing that. It, uh, it announced just a couple days ago, you know, depending on when people hear this, uh, that they they had considered his offer and uh, would be accepting it. So, what we know is that not a lot about what what Elon wants to do with the business model of Twitter. He has suggested maybe relying less on advertising on and more on a uh, uh, subscriber type uh, service where. You would have incentives to pay for additional services, to pay to get yourself a verified account, um, and that it would be private, 
uh, and that he would exercise less moderation than Twitter has exercised in the past. But how he, he'll make money with this is not clear at all, um, especially since like this is now going to be on his books. I mean, he and his, his investors, financers are, are going to own this whole thing. Um, you, you probably need a business plan because most people don't want to throw away $44 billion for uh, an asset that's not going to generate some revenue for you. Now, let's talk about that for just a second, because this is something else that's not getting talked about mm -hmm. at all. This is not a done deal, and it's no. not even on step two or three of a 100-step process of being a done deal. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about um, a hostile takeover, which was what this is, even though Twitter's agreeing to it, by, by legal definition, it's still a hostile takeover. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is highly regulated. There's a lot of rules to this. There's oversight sure. to this. He has to approve his financing. There has to be a third-party guarantor of this financing. We're a long ways from this deal being done, but everybody's acting like this thing is done. Talk about that process a little sure. bit because, and we'll lead into it a minute ago, Elon Musk recently, 2018, he yeah. said on Twitter of all places, he was going to take Tesla private and that went so well, it bought him a $20 million <laughs> fine, Tesla a $20 million fine. He turned out he did not have, he still to this day says he was serious, so SEC disagrees. He had to step down as the chairman of Tesla for at least five years. And here's the kicker that brings us to today. The SEC had to approve his tweeting, of all things, on Twitter. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry, when I see a movie one time, I want some proof that the sequel is going to be at least better Am I wrong for thinking that way? Because we're a long way to go on this puppy, but people are acting like it's done. It's it's uh, it's still uncertain. I would I would bet more likely than not at this point, but we'll see where he gets his financing. We know he is he has come forward with it's a forty four billion dollar deal. He's announced he has twenty five point five billion dollars in uh, lender financing. That still leaves open, you know, almost twenty billion dollars that. Uh, would come, he says, out of equity financing, which would mean basically Tesla stock or stock in one of his other uh, ventures, but most likely Tesla. He also has SpaceX and the Boring Company um, and a few other smaller ventures uh, that he could pledge that stock. All of which, though, if if he pledges, it means he loses control in those primary in those primary companies that that he has been at the helm of for quite a while. Um, so Tesla shares immediately after the Twitter announcement started falling because it was, it was unclear what would happen with Tesla. Would they dilute their shareholders by doing more, uh, by issuing more stock and that that's how he would end up financing the Twitter buy? Um, still unclear. The regulatory uh, approvals that are, are pending, um, it would have to go through antitrust clearance. It's probably not an antitrust concerned because Elon Musk and his companies are not currently in the social media business. Um, so uh, if you, if, uh, if Coca-Cola buys Pepsi or uh, McDonald's buys Burger King, that's what's called a horizontal merger. You're, you're merging, you're merging with a competitor in the same market and you're expanding out that almost always triggers serious antitrust concern. This would be more what you call a vertical merger. So in vertical mergers, there's less initial antitrust concern. There can be in some circumstances if you uh, are different parts of the production chain, say if, if General Motors bought out Uniroyal tires. Um, 
there might be concern that General Motors is going to use that acquisition to uh, try to uh, prevent its competitors, Toyota, from buying Uniroyal tires at the cheap level that General Motors can get it. That's not necessarily a bad thing, though, uh, but it would be something that you would have regulators being concerned about. The only concern a regulator could raise here, and it's it's one that I wouldn't be shocked if it happens because the FTC has gotten very activist under the Biden administration, is what the theory of potential competition, that the problem here is Elon Musk might have started a t- social media company in the future to compete with Twitter. And by buying Twitter, he doesn't start his social media company in the future. And so he's preventing theoretical future competition from happening, um, which sounds ridiculous, but there are regulators who, who pursue those kinds of ridiculous theories. So if the FTC were to step in and, and you know, pose a, a, a theoretical complaint on potential competition, um, I would not be shocked. I think it would be ridiculous, but I would not be shocked. Yeah, I don't want them to do that because then I'd have to defend Elon Musk getting Twitter, <laughs> which I don't really want to do, but I would have to in that case because that's absolutely ridiculous talking to RJ Lehman. Yep. Yep. Um, let, let's let's delve into that for just a second, though. Beside the regulation of it, yep. um, what's actually going to happen if he acquires this company? Because social media companies are not – I know it's a tech startup and the things and all the buzzwordy stuff – Social media companies are very specific beasts. They need armies upon armies of engineers to function. It is codes and algorithm. I know they're talking about the algorithm going, folks, you can't Mm -hmm. read the public code unless they give you, like the the, the algorithms are so complicated. The coding is so complicated. Even if he gets this thing, it's one thing to tweet about it. Yeah. In practicality, is this going to be one of those things, even if he gets control of the company, some engineers are going to sit him down and go, okay, look, Mr. Musk, I know you're this you know, boy wonder genius, but there's some pretty hard and fast rules and physics involved here when it comes to social media. How much is he actually going to be able to change, even setting aside the profitability thing, which we'll come back to in a minute, just on yeah. a practical level, there's some limits on what you can do here, right? There absolutely is. Twitter... Um the uh, the APIs, which are basically the instructions that you could use uh, to create, you know, say an app that takes advantage of the Twitter platform. You may remember a few years ago, there used to be a lot of those. I mean, the most famous one is TweetDeck, right? Where, where you could use this third-party app to schedule tweets, to filter your, your followers. Um, I'm and, using it right now. Right. So... <laughs> Twitter has has pulled back a bit on what you can do with third-party apps over the years. And theoretically, what Elon is talking about when he says he wants to make the code open source, uh, both, you know, the, the sort of the way he frames it is so that it would improve trust in the company. I mean, what I hear when I hear that is he wants to allow third-party developers to create apps that could, uh, for instance, you know, perform their own moderation, um, which is maybe not a terrible idea. I don't know that the the physics of it will work out, but you know, you could, for instance, uh, if if you want a uh, a Twitter feed that includes a lot of like, you know, scandalous content, you could have that kind of Twitter feed. If you don't, you could use this app to filter out some of that stuff. A lot of questions that are currently going all the way up to the top to the moderation team at Twitter, maybe could be handled by third parties 
Um, and so different kinds of users could have different kinds of apps. But anytime you open things up to third parties, the first question is security. Um, the more you open up to, to third parties, the more you increase your cyber risks. Um, Twitter has been breached in the past. There was the famous incident just uh, about a year or two ago uh, where a teenager here in Tampa uh, compromised. Uh, the, it was not a, a super advanced uh, sort of exploit. It was something that was done by, you know, finding a person who was on the inside who gave him, you know, access to a master panel. But that was the famous day that the blue checks could not tweet. <laughs> because they locked down all verified accounts because they were getting hacked. Um, so that, that kind of thing is, is something you would be concerned about uh, if you opened up the platform further. Um, that's why a lot of platforms are more closed. Yeah, talking to our friend RJ Lehman. Uh, we're talking Elon Musk. We're talking Twitter. We're talking about uh, the machinations thereof. We're going to take a quick break on Hertel. Come right back. Continue to talk about this because we've been talking about it for days on end and we all just need to talk about it for another 10 minutes or so. We'll do so on Hertel when it comes back right after this. Welcome back to Hertel, talking to our friend R.J. Lehman uh, down there in sunny South Florida, as famous people used to say daily. Uh, let's back up for a second with this merger thing. Mergers are one of those things where it affects a lot of people. I had it happen to me. I lost my job because our company got bought by another. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, they're like, well, we're going to get rid of 360 people. And it doesn't even have anything to do with me. You're just a line number. People hear about mergers, but they don't really understand how it works. Mm -hmm. So let's back up for a second and make sure everybody's got the nomenclature down. When you're talking about Elon Musk, Elon Musk cannot just walk up to a company, Twitter or any other, and go, oh, I'm going to buy you when it's a public company. Talk about that process a little bit, because I think that's where the breakdown on this thing happened. Shareholders have rights. Shareholders have voting responsibilities. Um, it's a complicated thing. Let's work through that nomenclature just a little bit to see if we can get the noise turned down on this thing a little. Sure. So when, when he took his uh, 9% stake, that did make him the largest shareholder in Twitter. Um, there were some that were close, you know, in the, in the 8% range. And those companies tend to be mutual funds, um, the largest being BlackRock and uh, Vanguard. Um, that's true of almost every major public company is that the largest investors are what are called institutional investors. Those are your mutual funds. Your pension funds, including you know state employee pension funds, tend to be among the largest. Um, your uh, life insurers and other insurance companies—they're um, very, uh, by nature, conservative investors. They buy the whole market. They'll they'll buy a share of every company in the S and P 500, um, and they exercise their voting rights, but in a usually in a pretty predictable and conservative way. They have advisors that will tell them how to vote um, in the annual proxy vote uh, on questions like the CEO's pay. Um, they, they are major factors in whether or not to accept a bid, um, and they entrust the board to make those decisions. Um, a lot of people, and this came up when, when Elon, Elon made his uh, initial bid and the company, announced, the board announced it was going to um, exercise a poison pill. Well, what, what that means here specifically is they would, once Elon had 15% of the company, uh, which would 
render him under SEC and Delaware law, Delaware is relevant because that's where Twitter is incorporated, uh, would render him an interested insider. Um, they could slow his ability to buy the company by up to uh, three years, um, mostly by granting other shareholders the right to buy more stock at a discounted rate, which would shrink his relative share of the company. It, um, so why, why would a board do that? Boards, uh, the cynical take is that boards boards of directors are only interested in their own power or their insiders, typically the CEO is a member of a board, often also the CEO is serving as the chair of the board. Um, so that that's the way some people look at uh, corporate boards exercising their authority to uh, defensively fight off a hostile or unsolicited bid for control. Um, that it kind of comes with this idea that like a, a company being a shareholder in a company is like being a member of a democracy that uh, that analogy only goes so far because it's like being, if it were like being a member of a citizen in a democracy, you could be a member of 3000 democracies at once. You could choose to quit your, your citizenship at any time. Um, and you could rejoin a second later just by pushing a button. You know, that's not really how democracies work in the real world. Usually, if you don't like the way a company is being run, the way you exercise that opinion is not to buy it or to vote out the board, but it's to sell your shares. Um, and so the law allows, Delaware law allows the board a lot of power, grants the board a lot of power to set its rules um, and those rules often include keeping out uh, troublemakers uh, who might not have the best interest in the company at, at heart. And that was the question is, is Elon Musk one of those troublemakers or is he making a serious bid? There's a good reason to suspect he might be just trying to stir up some stuff and not, not making a serious bid. In the end, uh, well, not at the end, but in the end, it, uh, for this week, at least, it looks like he has made what he thinks is a serious bid and what the board thinks is a serious bid. And this gets to a much bigger issue that we're going to have to cover in depth at another time, but I want to touch on it because we need to acknowledge it. Mm. We've had this long running political conversation and a legal conversation because we know the Supreme Court dealt with this with Citizens United of is a corporation people or is a corporation this evil, wicked, you know, monolithic thing that just exists mm -hmm. on paper in places like Delaware that doesn't really exist, but only exists on paper. Right. That's a joke. That last part, we love mm -hmm. people from Delaware, mostly. Mm -hmm. I had to go to Dover too many times. I'm bitter. <laughs> but the point is, um, to be serious for a second, this is a larger conversation about government, you know, government, how they see a corporation. Is it people or is it yeah. an entity? You yeah. know, do stakeholders have democratic rights within a company? And then when you have something like, you know, Elon Musk, that's such a big whale. It goes, the whale goes through the net. The old saying goes, that's kind of what's happening here. But if it's not Twitter and it doesn't have all the buzzwords attached to it, these companies have a lot of people involved. Talk about that for just a second, because that's the bigger issue down the road of things like Citizens United, things like voting rights for companies, things like free speech and political speech for companies. Yeah. All that stuff winds up in a ball when you have, you know, Elon Musk is a wrecking ball that kind of cuts through all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But all those issues aren't going away and all those issues are going to be big issues going forward, uh, yeah. both in politics and in corporate America. 
One of the things that concerns me, it came up, I don't think it's going to develop into anything in this instance, but uh, it's going to, it's not going to go away. Um, my governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, um, when the Twitter board announced that they were not initially, initially announced that they were going to exercise the poison pill and not accept Elon Musk's bid, he suggested that Florida, and specifically the Florida State Pension Fund, um, would sue uh, that sue the board of directors for um, not for not exercising uh, what would be in the best interest of them as shareholders. But clearly, his interest there is political. His interest was that he does not like Silicon Valley companies, and he 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 thinks that he takes Elon's side in some of these debates about free speech. And so, it would be a political lawsuit if they fought, if they filed it. Unfortunately, that's not new. It's happened often that state officials um, have, uh, have a stake uh, in companies through pension funds through which they are trying to achieve political ends. So th this happened a few years ago with the state comptroller of New York, a uh, guy named Scott Stringer, who later ran for mayor. Um, and he was using his authority as the head of the New York State Pension Board um, to file these proxy ballot uh, initiatives at companies because they uh, were, were not uh, attuned to global warming. They were, you know, exercising, they were, they were issuing car carbon uh, emissions um, or that their board wasn't sufficiently diverse or that they weren't giving, you know, uh, appropriate uh, benefits to LGBT employees. Basically, using your authority, using your power as an investor and a government official to exercise to get political ends through investment means, and I I, I really find that uh, a troubling trend. And now, now that the left has been doing it for a few years, the right is absolutely going to pick it up. R.J. Lehman, uh, great stuff. Really appreciate the insight. I got a feeling we're going to be talking about this in a couple of weeks. Um, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that maybe somebody that loves him should get Elon Musk to not tweet for a couple of weeks. I don't think he will, because yeah. I think this thing is one tweet away from blowing up, but we'll see what happens. We'll see. Uh, well, appreciate your insight on this. We're going to have you back on to talk about this. We're going to put you in the regular rotation. You do good work, sir. <laughs> Until we get you back though, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, uh, what you do with that fancy EIC title that everybody covers, <laughs> but nobody actually wants to do the work once they get it. And your social media, sir. So the, the International Center for Law and Economics, you can find us at laweconcenter.org. We, uh, we work uh, in the law and economics tradition of legal jurisprudence uh, and, uh, and seek to uh, promote scholars who work in that tradition. Uh, a lot of our work is on antitrust and tech issues. So uh, Twitter uh, and, 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 and Twitter's moderation issues are all things that uh, we're already very engaged in. And if you come to our website, you can see some of the things we've written about it. Fantastic. And he's a good Twitter buddy, a august and respected member <laughs> of the Twitter Supper Club because they do good eating down there in Florida and wherever yeah. his travels take him. Thank you so much for your time, sir. We'll have you back soon and continue to talk about these issues. Thank you. Thank you, sir.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, talking about Elon Musk and the uh, potential purchase of Twitter that's been agreed to, but the ink ain't done on that. There's some steps to go through that when we talk about it with our guest, RJ Lehman, today on the program. We've been talking about it for about a week. I'm kind of tired of talking about it because you wind up in really, really silly stuff like this story right here. Let's go to our friends over at Hot Air. Uh, Ed Morsey has this. Uh, Senator Ed Markey. Uh, from the uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, put out a tweet. I'm going to read it uh, verbatim. Elon Musk and a handful of billionaires now have dangerous influence over the most powerful online platforms. They can't be trusted, and self-regulation has failed. We must pass laws to protect privacy and to promote algorithmic justice. Let me repeat that. Algorithmic justice for Internet users especially for children. Huh? Uh, what a wonderful made-up word. Algorithmic justice. Uh, Ed has his thoughts on here. You can read those at hotair.com. Our friend Ed Morrissey. But I, I just want to drill in on this for a second. Let's just go over this entire statement for a second. They can't be trusted and self-regulation has failed. Frankly, I don't trust our government either, and they don't regulate themselves worth anything. Now, part of that's our fault because we don't make them regulate anything. But most powerful online platforms. Let's calm down for just a second about Twitter. We've already covered it. Only about 20% of Americans have Twitter. That's opposed to 80 some percent of people who have Facebook and inside of Twitter, only about 6% of those are actually active. And we have even more data, how really about two or 3% of them actually dictate about 97% of all the content on Twitter because they're the influencers and then everything else is just people reacting to it. So you're actually talking about a rather small segment of folks. Now, Twitter has an outside influence because of who's on it. A lot of media people, a lot of writers, a lot of commentators, a lot of these things. It's kind of where they all congregate. It is both the headwaters and tide pools of our news media. That's why I'm on it. It's where the action is. It's where things are going on. But let's talk about this statement about algorithmic justice. Now, with Elon Musk talking about taking over Twitter, everybody's been talking about all the content changes they're going to be making. He has said that they want to make the algorithms public, how those work. Um, folks, algorithms are just programming. That's all they are. Somebody programs them. Yes, you can program them with bias. You can program them with inherent bias, even when you're not trying, because we're all human beings. But even Elon Musk is now tweeting about, well, Twitter needs to be a neutral platform. There's no such thing as a neutral platform. There's no such thing as neutral news media. There's no such thing as neutral social media. It's never going to happen because they have to have something vaguely resembling content moderation. The idea that you're going to be neutral is only going to last until some really bad faith actors think neo-Nazis or whoever you want to pick as the bad guys. They're just the easy ones. They show up and start doing stuff and you go, oh my goodness, we can't allow this. Well, now you're not a neutral platform anymore, even though they're obviously evil, wicked, and have no business being on there. You're now no longer neutral because you got to get rid of them. And I'm for that. So let's be adults and put aside the thing that we're all going to be neutral. But what Senator Markey's talking about is the opposite end of the spectrum and even more ridiculous. Algorithmic justice? There's no such thing as justice in an algorithm. That's like saying the computer made me do it or the computer let me down. No, the computer just does what it's programmed to do. It doesn't think for itself. I understand AI is getting there, but it ain't there just yet. Thank God. The algorithm does what it's programmed to do. We don't need algorithmic justice. We need algorithmic accountability. But what Senator Markey's talking about is not accountability. He wants algorithmic power. 
He wants algorithmic veto authority. He wants the government, a.k.a. him, to have a say over everything else that's going on. That's what he really means by algorithmic justice. It's a silly, ridiculous, made-up word that sounds really, really important. But then when a U.S. senator wants to put the force of law behind it, it's more than just a word. Now it's a threat. The free and open Internet is the greatest tool for freedom humans have come up with in the last little bit of human history. Things like algorithmic justice by senators who really want more algorithmic power and veto authority, no matter how bad you think Twitter might be or Facebook or anything else, no matter how much you may not like an Elon Musk or Zuckerberg or whoever else, the government isn't going to come in and benevolently fix all that. They need to be held just as accountable as they're saying social media needs to be held, but they rarely are. Senator Markey knows that. Algorithmic justice? I'd rather have algorithmic accountability. But first, I want government accountability because they're not going to hold anybody to any standards, justice or otherwise, unless they get their own house in order first. More hotel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. You know we always try to end on a more of an uplifting note. Let's go down to Florida. Dick Vitel, legendary basketball commentator. He's awesome, baby, that guy. Uh, but you didn't see him this college basketball season much at all. It's because he spent the last seven months fighting cancer, including a spell where he spent about three months where he couldn't talk at all with only semi-related vocal cord problems. But down in Florida, college basketball icon Dick Vitel said his greatest accomplishment has been his ability to give back to others. This is WFTS out of Tampa Bay. At 82, Vitel remains passionate about raising money for pediatric cancer research. No kids should suffer. No kids should be doing what I was doing, going through the chemotherapy, going through the scans, Vitel said. He's getting ready to host the 17th annual Dick Vitale Gala held in his home of Sarasota. Fundraiser benefits the V Foundation and is expected to raise more than $7 million this year for pediatric cancer research. Vitale has fought cancer for the last seven months, first diagnosed with melanoma and then lymphoma. Earlier this month, he rang the bell at Sarasota Memorial Hospital after doctors said his cancer is in remission. He had been posting updates on social media. Quote, I just thought it was important to really share and let people know what a cancer patient goes through. I'll be very honest with you. Seven months have been brutal. It's not been fun. Vitel said he was so frustrated when he couldn't speak for three months during his cancer treatment. Vitel is battling issues with his vocal cords that are not totally related to his cancer. But he said, quote, I feel really frustrated. I felt trapped. And at home, Vitel has drawers full of letters from children battling cancer. He said he responds to every letter or note he receives as best he can. I want to help these kids, and I tell you, I'm obsessed with it, he said. Vitel says he is blessed with an amazing career and a beautiful family. I've lived a great life, a beautiful wife of 50 years and two beautiful daughters. Through his legendary career spans decades, and he's been witness to countless greats in college basketball moments. He said his greatest achievement has been his ability to give back to others. I'm in 14 Hall of Fames, Vitel said. Obviously, the big one is the Hall of Fame of Basketball. I'm in the Hall of Fame of Broadcasting, Hall of Fame where I coached in college, Hall of Fame of where I lived in New Jersey. The bottom line is those are all great achievements. But my biggest, biggest, I feel, accomplishment of my life is being able to give back and trying to help kids battle cancer. The V Foundation for Cancer Research was founded by ESPN and legendary basketball coach Jim Valvano. To learn more about the upcoming gala, there's links in this piece at uh, abcactionnews.com. It's out of Tampa. 
God bless Dick Vitale. We hope he's well. We hope he recovers his health. Hopefully, we'll see him at college basketball games this fall. That'll do it for Hertel today. Uh, covered a lot of different stuff today. It's what we do every day if you're new to the program. New episodes every weekday. Make sure you are subscribed wherever you are watching or listening to the show. YouTube page is the best place to watch it. We got all the playlists for uh, Tell episodes every day. Also, the Good Talks. Those are the interview segments. We break those out. They get their own little thing. Those come out every afternoon. You'll get all of it if you subscribe for free at the YouTube page. That includes our twice on Sunday recap shows, our deep dives. We got 36 of them. We got some more of those in the pipeline coming. You want to get it all, make sure you subscribe. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google, whatever podcasting platform you use, we are on there. Just go to Tell or my name, Andrew Donaldson. Should come right up with you. No problem. Make sure you subscribe. A couple different reasons for that. One is you don't want to miss anything. Two is it lets us keep track of who is watching and what you're watching and what you're listening to so we can continue to improve the program, give you the turning down of the noise you're looking for. Uh, this is a partnership. If you're not listening, we don't have anybody to talk to. We're all in this together. So we want to be able to keep track of you. Make sure you're subscribing, please. Other thing you can do, make sure you're leaving a comment and a rating on all those platforms. We do see those. Uh, you never know. We might even answer you back. Keep your bearing. Be nice. Love to hear from you. Answer us directly. Communicate with us directly. Hertelshow at gmail.com at Hertelshow on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Might even put it on the show. You might even wind up on the show. It's happened a couple of times. So until we see you again, we hope wherever you are across the street or around the world that you and yours are well, that you're well fed. We'll talk to you soon on the next Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.